Welcome back to the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. I'm Hugh Hewitt, the president of the Nixon Foundation, and this is part two of our series on Watergate in the ongoing podcast, Known Unknowns, which we tape here at the Nixon Library. Sometimes I host, sometimes other people host. But today my guest is Jeff Shepard, longtime lawyer on the White House staff with President Nixon. If you listen to episode one as we talked about Watergate, Jeff Shepard came out of Harvard Law School, went right down to Washington, D.C., became a White House fellow at an extraordinarily young age and went to work first at Treasury, then in the White House. And when we left off with part one of our conversation about Watergate, I had said and I had left as sort of the teaser, we get to the cabinet and John Mitchell next. Jeff, when we were talking in part one about Watergate, the roots of Watergate, yes. we were talking about a White House staff that had many power centers, many powerful people, many agendas, and a brilliant man at the middle of it, Richard Nixon. He also had a very unusual cabinet, and one of the central figures in that cabinet who would become a central figure in Watergate is John Mitchell. Tell us what you know about John Mitchell, what you think about John Mitchell, and what his role prior to his leaving the Department of Justice was. Uh, John Mitchell was uh, uh, highly respected by President Nixon. He was a law partner in uh, Nixon Mudrow's law firm uh, uh, in, in New York when Nixon was there. Uh, he was head of the Nixon uh, uh, 1968 election campaign. Uh, Nixon had lost in 1960 and ran his own campaign. In 68, they convinced Nixon to uh, just give that over and let, let Mitchell run it. Mitchell was a bond lawyer, and he's very famous for inventing the moral obligation bond uh, in most municipalities and states before the government can incur debt, uh, uh, dedicate future tax collections to a project, they need a vote of the people. And damn, sometimes those people just won't go along with new debt. So what, what Mitchell invented was called the moral obligation bond. They don't, the, the municipality doesn't guarantee we'll pay this bond, but we'll act like we do so that you didn't have to have a vote of the people. And he became very successful. His firm's opinions on all these bond issues was absolutely key to incurring debt without a vote. Uh, uh, he was uh, highly respected by Nixon. When Nixon won, he asked John Mitchell to be his attorney general. Mitchell didn't want to come. He wasn't a political guy. He was having troubles with his wife. The famous Martha, who was- Not famous to our audience, but she will be. She will become very famous. She is well on her way to becoming an alcoholic. He loves her dearly, uh, but she is a handful, and he doesn't want to come. So they moved and, from New York to Washington, D.C. Yes, and take an apartment at the Watergate uh, 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 apartment complex. You anticipated my question. So John Mitchell and Martha Mitchell are living at the Watergate. He's the attorney general. These are controversial times. These are turbulent times. Can you reflect a little bit on what Washington in 1970, uh, 69 when you arrived, 1970 when you moved to the White House, is like, what the mobilization about the, against the war makes it like, and the tension of the era? The Vietnam War is the most unpopular war in the nation's history. Uh, 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 just massive upset. Kids don't want to be drafted. I was part of the era where uh, you just believed, as the night today, uh, uh, if you got drafted, you were going to Vietnam. If you went to Vietnam, you were going to die. Why so, weren't you drafted? Because I joined ROTC uh, at Harvard Law School. I was terrified I'd be drafted out of law school. Uh, the, the college, Whittier, being a Quaker college, didn't have ROTC units. 
So I, it, would, it was open and shut. You were going to go. You're going to go some way. So I joined ROTC at Harvard. Okay. So back back uh, so, to DC in 1970. Yeah, so uh, uh, it, 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 the nation is tearing itself apart, and the Department of Justice is in the middle of it. Uh, and and John Mitchell uh, comes to uh, to Washington to head it. He was the Department of Justice, highly respected. Career officials at the Department of Justice were in awe of John Mitchell. He wasn't a political hack. The head of the criminal division, Henry Peterson, who had served 12 attorneys general, said he, he thought Mitchell never uttered a single word he didn't intend to. No chit-chat, no casual. You run a meeting, the meeting is run in an appropriate way, a decision is made. Highly respected. I worked for two attorney general, William French Smith and yes. Edwin Meese. Yes. I believe Mitchell is in the uh, uh, William French Smith mold originally, that he was understood to be a white shoe lawyer of extraordinary capacity yes. and not born for the political fray. Absolutely. Not political at all. Uh, except the, the, this, this neat way of avoiding a vote. I mean, he became, he knew uh, 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 state and local people all over the nation because of the bond issues. But he was not, he wasn't a political guy. Now, uh, when it came time for the president to run for re-election, they wanted Mitchell to go back and run the re-election campaign. It's a very interesting phenomenon that happens, Hugh. Once you get into power, it's more fun being in power than it is to go back and run the campaign. And everybody postpones going back to the campaign, and they put underlings there as seat warmers. Uh, uh, and so Mitchell didn't go. I kept putting it off and putting it off. He didn't go till March uh, 1st of 1973. And they did March 1st of 1972. The election is in 1972. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> so I, he, get the, I get the years mixed he up. He waits until the election year. Well, they've been, there, they've been there for five or six months. Yeah. Now, I'll stop for a moment and, and talk a little bit about Mitchell as attorney general, because I want to make perfectly clear, <laughs> using a President Nixon yes, phrase. Yes, one thing perfectly one clear. One thing perfectly clear. He had nothing to do with the plumbers. And I want people to understand that. Yes. And if I'm wrong, correct me. As you know, I, I am not a Watergate savant. I know a little bit about Watergate. In my years with President Nixon, we were always looking forward, never backwards, yeah. writing books about the future, writing books sure. about foreign policy, sure. not writing books about Watergate. So when I'm wrong, just tell me I'm wrong. But it's my clear understanding that the plumbers have nothing to do with John Mitchell. Yes, we can talk about the plumbers. We will. John, John's name won't come up. And, and so at the Department of Justice, though, he is facing law and order problems, riots. He is facing massive mobilization against the war. Famous photograph of him looking down at the, the tear gas. war <laughs> tear right. gas in front of him. Yeah. And he's facing the Pentagon Papers. And this is where I want to go to the Pentagon Papers and okay. set up, because I believe they are central to the Watergate story. Do you agree with me on oh, that? Oh, absolutely. So tell us about Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers, and how it's not actually unfair to think that Ellsberg is the, the domino that sets off the resignation of the president. Well, that leads to the resignation of the president. Yeah. Uh, uh, nobody understands this, Hugh, because nobody's read the Pentagon Papers. Nobody's read about them. They just know they existed and Ellsberg leaked them. Uh, they, were, they were done by three people at the Department of, uh, of Defense uh, under the auspices of Robert McNamara. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll think of the names in a few minutes. But they were the three anti-war people. Uh, Paul Warnke was general counsel. Mort Halpern 
uh, uh, was one of his assistants, assistants, and Les Gilb did most of the writing. And apparently they said to McNamara, you know, someday we better forget how we got into this. So the papers reviewed our relationships with the Vietnam Communist Party in Ho Chi Minh from World War II to the end of the Johnson administration. Nothing to do with Nixon. Uh, uh, Dan Ellsberg worked on the Pentagon Papers. He was a, a, a military guy, originally very, very strong advocate of the war, turned against him. Well, he wanted to leak the papers, and lots of people wouldn't touch it because it was top secret. When did he turn against the war? When President Nixon assumes office in January of 1969, there are 550,000 American troops in Vietnam. Eventually, more than 50,000 Americans would be killed there, tens of thousands more wounded. Agent Orange would travel uh, and follow many, many tens of thousands more. Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese would be killed. It ripped apart Asia. It destroyed unity in the United States. But it Richard Nixon walked in the door and it was underway, 550,000. When did these people turn against the war that they created? Oh, everything was ducky or quietly suppressed while Lyndon Johnson was president because he was a Democrat and the Democrats controlled the Congress. But when Nixon came into office, you're right, 550, think about that number, 550,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam. Then they turned on Nixon because he was a Republican. They being? Uh, the whole Democratic establishment. And the national news media, Without which question. at that time was defined by three networks. Yes. And the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Is there and anyone else? Two weekly magazines. Time and Newsweek. That was it. US, that was US the... News and World Report doesn't count? No, it didn't no, it count. So we got, eight, we got eight outlets, three television networks, three newspapers two weekly yes. news magazine. Yes. That those eight outlets had been supportive of the war and turned against it? Uh, at least quiet on the war. The, the, this was a patriotic duty. We were stopping communism. Uh, uh, we were defending the uh, South Vietnamese. Uh, uh, it, it was uh, something we needed to do to preserve U.S. interests in Southeast Asia. So Korea, they turned against... Co co uh, China had fallen to the commies. Uh, uh, Korea had blown up, uh, and the worry was we'd lose all of Indochina. Now, Nixon had brought Dr. Kissinger in, and we have some conversations with Dr. Kissinger, which we will air at a different time on the known unknowns. But Dr. Kissinger was working the back channel to China as an effort to play the China card against the Russians and bring the Vietnam War to a conclusion. We had the peace talks going on. But John Mitchell dealing with the domestic disturbance, and at the same time, Ellsberg starts to leak these papers. Yes. Yes. What is the reaction inside the White House to the leak of the Pentagon Papers? Well, they're just appalled, but the first cut is this is Johnson's problem that you're, you're not involved. Okay, so let him go Nixon's fight. not Nixon, involved. Nixon's not involved. The Pentagon Papers stopped when uh, the, the review when with the inauguration of Richard Nixon. So it's all backwards. Uh, uh, it's really interesting to read the Pentagon Papers. I have. Uh, uh, but Henry Kissinger came in and said, listen, we are negotiating with three totalitarian regimes, Vietnam and Russia and China. And if we can't keep secrets, they won't deal with us. When you say Henry Kissinger came in and said that, to whom did he say it and when did he say it? Uh, he said it to the president uh, and, and to Haldeman numerous times. We've got to react to the leak of these papers. This By react, what did Dr. Kissinger <clears throat> mean? And I'll ask him the same question. Oh, find and punish the leaker. Okay. Now, one other ad, just to, to, to put the Pentagon Papers in, 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 uh, in context. 
they would, they, it was just a chronological development of what happened. Uh, uh, but they would say, well, you know, that this occurred and they would cite a, a memo, a classified memo that said that. Those were reproduced at the end of the papers, 48 volumes of papers. And if you were the communists and you had the encrypted broadcast of that memo, you now had the real copy and you could break our codes. So this was a flagrant violation of, of national security. Uh, the, the FBI told the White House. Did they tell Mitchell or did they tell the White House? I'm, I'm very careful not to confuse people because of our current situation. The FBI is a part of the Department of Justice. They operate independent of it. Hoover operated very independent of it, but they are a part of it, correct? Yes, legally they are a part of it. Today they report to the Deputy Attorney General. J. Edgar Hoover is alive at this point. J. Edgar Hoover is a force unto himself, the strongest bureaucrat in the, uh, in, in the nation. Uh, the, the FBI, it, it, to its critics, is a secret police force that keeps records on everybody. Uh, uh, Hoover should have been retired 10 years before, but the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, the Nixon administration were afraid to take him on. But the Department of Justice, again, known unknown, under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, did not have clean hands when it came oh, to domestic political it, opponents. It, it, that's a different study. That's the Church Committee. You go look at the hearings of the Church Committee, which I've also had occasion to read, and they get the FBI liaison agents to Johnson and to Kennedy, uh, Courtney Evans and uh, Cartha Deke DeLoach under oath, and they started asking them about stuff they did. Nothing short of incredible. Just incredible. Uh, but no, the public didn't know. And the Congress is in Democratic hands. It's not going to investigate. And the media is having dinner with Jack Kennedy and sailing with him. Wonderful and they people. are not bringing you down bet. the Ben president. Bradley is in awe. The, the executive editor of the Post, Ben Bradley, is socializes with Jack Kennedy. It's the most wonderful time of his life. Kennedy can do no wrong. Therefore, his administration can do no wrong. His younger brother is the youngest attorney general in the nation's history. And that whole place becomes politicized because Bobby wants things done a certain way. So flash forward, Ellsberg turns, the media turns, Nixon is the target, John Mitchell is the defender, Hoover is the keeper of the guard, and the papers are out there. This is the trigger. What happens when Nixon says, find the culprit? Well, uh, uh, first, Mitchell and Mitchell's people go into court to try to prevent publication of the Pentagon Papers. Famous this case. Is prior restraint, first the Times, then the Washington Post, and every time they got an injunction, they got 29 injunctions stopping while the courts decided. Can't print it while the courts decide. Uh, uh, but every time they shut somebody down, they'd go to another newspaper, and the newspaper said, we can play this game. We aren't, we aren't uh, covered by that. Yeah, it wasn't a nationwide injunction. We're not covered by that, so they kept doing it. And it was whack-a-mole. You hit this one down, this mole pops up. You hit that one down. That was all Mitchell's, full time. Within the White House itself, Nixon said, this stuff's got to stop. We've got to stop leaks. We've got to get Ellsberg. Had there so, been other leaks beside the Pentagon paper? There are always leaks in Washington. <laughs> Washington leaks like a sieve, but nothing on this order. This because was, this threatened the national security of the United well, States. It threatened, uh, it, indeed, did it, it not lead to the death of many of our colleagues and patriotic allies in South Vietnam when the regime fell? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, 
whether you're saying the Pentagon Papers led to the fall of the regime. No, I'm saying they had in their sources and methods, methods and sources that were revealed, compromised, and eventually traced, and retribution was had. Yes, let's go back to the FBI. The FBI told the White House when when, when Nixon first assembled his team to react, to stop leaks. This is a policy issue, not litigating the publication of the papers. The FBI told the, uh, the, 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 uh, the group that a copy had been delivered to the Soviet embassy. Now, we argue over whether it was true or not, but it's uncontroverted that at the moment of crisis, the papers are out, the, the, the newspapers are printing. We don't know what they've got. We didn't even know the Pentagon Papers existed. It was an unpeer-reviewed study solely within the Department of Justice by three people. Headed, the Department of Defense. Department, I'm sorry, the Department of Defense. I get worked up. Uh, uh, under, uh, supervised by the three prominent anti-war individuals within the Department of Defense. State wasn't consulted. The National Security Council wasn't consulted. This isn't the official statement of the Department of Defense. This is a study secretly undertaken by pretty senior guys, but they're anti-war guys. And then Ellsberg goes and leaks it. Uh, and, and, and worse, Ellsberg had access to the study, did a part of it, but he had access to the full study uh, because it was housed at Rand Corporation out in Santa Monica. And he was a consultant, and he had copied and physically removed the copies, and he had access to 54,000 pages of other classified documents. And they were showing up on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. They didn't know what else so they were going to do. So Nixon says, stop this. Stop it. Let's get him. And inside the White House, who gets that order and how is it executed? Well, they offered it to Pat Moynihan, and Pat Moynihan said, this isn't worth it uh, to do editorials and attack. This is not This is not what we need to do. So it failed. By they means the president said, Pat, I want you to write a way out well, of this. No, He's no. not going to be a plumber. But Pat no. Moynihan is not cut out to be a, po- no, I'm a sorry. plumber. No, no, no. Uh, Pat, Pat Buchanan. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Pat, you know, Pat's a fighter. Uh, 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 it, it was, we've got to destroy Ellsberg. We've got to react to this leak. And Pat, uh, Pat Buchanan has a, 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 a letter, a memo to Haldeman saying this isn't worth it. But stop for a moment. We've got to destroy Ellsberg. We've got to get to the leak. Does that come from the president? It is an outcome of meetings uh, with the president, with Kissinger, with Ehrlichman, and with Haldeman. It's not uh, illegitimate. I'm not, those, I'm not in those meetings. I'm, I'm making observation from okay. far away and not having been there in, in high school at the time. It is not illegitimate for the President of the United States to worry about national security leaks and to direct his top advisors to find where they are and to stop them. Absolutely. Without question. And so the operational order to respond to them goes to Buchanan. Buchanan writes back and says, it's not worth it. What happens next? Well, they pick two other people. They pick Bud Krogh, who is one of Ehrlichman's top guys in charge of the law and order issue. Who recently died before, in fact, we are talking. Yes. last week. Uh, Within within the last week or two. Uh, Bud Krogh is co-plumber. And David Young, who is contributed by the National Security Council, is co-plumber. And David had been, he had been one of Henry's uh, uh, executive assistants to begin with, but he was responsible for declassification. Who picked them? 
Uh, I think Henry volunteered David and John volunteered Bud. Who named them? Bud had a personal meeting with the president, came out just loaded for bear. We've but got to stop the leaks. Who named them as the plumbers? Well, the name came from they themselves. It was There was some other technical name, but they were supposed to stop leaks. So they called themselves the plumbers. David were, Young, Bud Crow. Right, co-plumbers. Both lawyers. Yes, totally different personalities. I know I met them both only in their late years. Brilliant men at the time, uh, uh, I'm sure. Uh, prominent. Very uh, young. Again, the Nixon White House is very young. Every White House has young staff. The president, newly elected, deserves people around him who, whose goal is to accomplish what the president wants to do. You can't have a presidency come in filled with old, old uh, uh, white-haired people who say, we can't do that, we tried that 15 years ago. Every White House staff. We are young. old white-haired people. We, we are mean no disrespect to old white-haired people, but you need Larry Higby, who is, I don't know to. if he's shaving. Uh, sorry, Larry. Right. And, and you need a Dwight Chapin, who is Bob Haldeman's deputy. No, they are endlessly they, energetic and ready to work. Uh, uh, they, they work around the clock. They're loyal as they can be. And the president comes into office and deserves a personal staff that want to accomplish what he sets out to do. So David Young and Bud Crow do what with their assignment that will subsequently become the plumber's unit? I blame Bud and not David. They take uh, uh, opposite paths and, and, and points of view. Uh, Bud had been extraordinarily successful in combating drug abuse. And, and in, in our effort to break the heroin epidemic, we brought into the White House itself a, a, a drug treatment expert, and we created the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention, and we brought into the White House staff uh, uh, to run the uh, 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 Drug Enforcement Administration, which we created, the former Commissioner of Customs, Miles Ambrose, and on the treatment side, Jerry This Jaffe. is all very nice, Jeff, but it's well, not Well, I'm going to get you there. I know. And Bud felt, since he, could, he did it out of the White House themselves, they took, they, they took an operation, and they commanded it, and they were successful. Bud made an incredibly critical error of saying, we can do this ourselves. The Ellsberg, the Ellsberg shut down. Shut down Ellsberg. The problem was they were trying to figure out what he was going to do. They got the CIA to do a psychological profile. They of, meaning Bud Crow. Yeah, you know, absolutely, because they're trying to, they're trying to th figure out what Ellsberg's up to, stop the leaks. How do they know it's Ellsberg? He was very, uh, very public about having. Okay, leaked. so you're filling no, in he, for me. He, he I, was out giving speeches and and, and being lauded so by the media. Bud Crow calls a four-digit number at the Langley at CIA, not one of the three-digit. Oh, or David does. Or David, maybe David, David. Give us a psych profile. We need a psych profile, and, and 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 it's crappy. It's not very good. And they say, well, you know, he goes to the shrink. He sees the shrink all the time. And they say, well, Ellsberg sees Ellsberg a psychiatrist, sees the yeah. Dr. Lewis Fielding. And Dr. Fielding won't cooperate. Dr. Fielding won't talk to him. To talk to who? Talk to the uh, FBI about his treatment of Daniel Ellsberg. Now, pause, Jeff. You've left us behind because you said Bud Crow wanted to run it out of the White House. When does the FBI re-enter the picture? Well, they get together a couple of meetings in the Roosevelt Room, kitty-cornered from the Oval Office, and they have the Department of Defense. It's your fault this got leaked. And they have the FBI and they have the CIA, and they command their presence and their help 
on figuring out what Ellsberg's going to do, stopping the leaks, and to a lesser extent, starting declassification the, of overclassified documents. These are crucial meetings. Oh, without question. Is Hoover in them? No, Hoover doesn't come to meetings at the White House. He sends an FBI, top okay. FBI agent. So, I don't know the guy's name. I don't know the dates of this. People who are interested can go look them up. But out of this comes the effort to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist. Well, office. the Pentagon Papers leak is June of 71. The Ellsberg break-in is September of 71. So in between, there's three months of, of meetings. What happened? Who, who decides we're going to break in? Why do they decide it? Who executes it? Is it effective? And what does it mean for the future of the presidency? I believe it's, it's the second domino. It's, the, it's, it's, it's just a disaster. Uh, uh, Bud has hired onto the domestic council staff for other reasons G. Gordon Liddy from Treasury. When the Pentagon Papers gears up, a leak occurs, and he gears up the plumbers, he assigns Gordon Liddy to work on the plumbers full time. time. Out. Famous name. Famous you just name. Just brought him over from Treasury. Yes. When did you, Jeff Shepard, first meet G. Gordon Liddy? At Treasury. I was a White House fellow at Treasury. He was there. When he was brought over by Bud Crow, did you think to yourself, this is interesting, or this is trouble, or hello there, Gordon? I said it was going to be a disaster. To I, whom? I, to Bud. I was Bud's top assistant at the time. I knew Gordon from Treasury. He was being fired from Treasury for insubordination. And I said, we can't, we can't afford to have someone like that here on the domestic council. And I did. I, it was such a serious objection that Bud set aside time for us to go across the street to a coffee shop, Noni's Coffee Shop, spend 45 minutes to hear me out on my opposition to Gordon Cumming. And it had to do with the people on the White House staff cannot be that aggressive. He's a field general at best, not a staff general. And I lost. And he hired Gordon. And then within What well, was a, Gordon's portfolio when he was hired? Uh, he, he was a number, another staff member on Bud's staff in the Domestic Council. It was undefined. To do whatever Bud told him to do. Whatever Bud told him. He had to do basically with law enforcement. He'd been a special assistant to the Secretary of Treasury involved in law enforcement issues. So from the time he arrived and between June, the Pentagon Papers publication, September the break-in, did G. Gordon Liddy get the con? Did he get put in charge? Oh, yes. Uh, he did, uh, uh, he did a memo saying Hoover should be fired that was, was probably very accurate. Uh, but Hoover wouldn't help investigate Ellsberg. One of Hoover's best friends was Ellsberg's father-in-law, a guy named Leonard Marks, ran a toy company, gave Hoover a lot of toys around Christmas time to give out. Uh, and Hoover really liked him, so he wasn't enthusiastic about investigating Daniel Ellsberg. So when the order comes down and Hoover takes a pass, how in the world is G. Gordon Liddy going to get into Ellsberg's office? And does anyone know, Bud Crow or John Ehrlichman or the president or anybody know that we are attempting in the White House to break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office? Bud and uh, uh, David Young do a status meeting with John Ehrlichman on uh, August 5th. Of 1970. 1971. 71, I'm sorry, you're right. Uh, uh, they have a vague memory of what they discussed, but one of the things was the psychological profile is no good, uh, Fielding won't cooperate. Uh, then they write a memo 
to John Ehrlichman on August 8th, three days later, and it says, uh, we recommend uh, that we undertake a covert operation to discover what Fielding knows about Ellsberg. And, and it's approve, disapprove. Ehrlichman does an E at the approve box and writes, if not traceable to us. Okay? Is this an illegal act? Well, that's one of the more interesting questions in life, Hugh, because we have long maintained, people don't agree, but the, uh, the church committee showed that from at least 1936 to present, there was a national security exception to the Fourth Amendment's restriction on unreasonable searches and seizures. That covers all of what is known as COINTELPRO 2. Oh, absolutely. I mean, COINTELPRO, yeah. and I now say COINTELPRO 2, given what's gone on in the Trump administration era. But now you and I would agree, would we not, that that today would be illegal? Yes. I'm not sure we'd be right. I'm not sure the law is right. The position taken at the time. Would we now set our hair on fire and say, no way, no how, I'm quitting if you do this? The, let me make the case. It was felt at the time, we were going into World War II, that the president's duties as commander-in-chief enabled him in national security instances to enter the premises of American citizens without a court order because you didn't want to have to go to what today's 800 federal district court judges looking for a search warrant because the judge might ask, knowing nothing about what was going on, all kinds of national security questions that you didn't have the time or inclination to answer. That's why we invented the FISA court. You don't like the FISA court either, but there's this tension. I do. I was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Special Assistant to both Bill Smith and Ed Meese, and I think it worked fine until last year. Okay. I mean, well, actually, until 2015. Well, I would tell you the original idea of a national security exception to the need for a court order to go search premises. Uh, Interesting. Uh, uh, it worked just fine until it became abused. And if you read the church committee report, which I have done, which I talk about setting your hair on fire, uh, they, they did it against Germans, okay, uh, in World War II. And then there were the civil rights agitators, and Hoover was so down on, on uh, Martin Luther King uh, uh, that, that he just dumped all over the civil rights agitators. And then he got upset with women's libbers, and they were using it against a tool. Hoover of worked against genuine American heroes and did what we see in retrospect to have been awful things. Hoover stayed too long. But he uh, could not be fired, correct? Well, they were afraid of him. He had right. all these secret files. Right. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, you talk about power uh, and, and corruption in Washington. Hoover, Hoover had files they feared on everybody. So back to uh, uh, let me Ellsberg. Just, let, me, let me just for a second on the right. church committee. And then they started against anti-war protesters. Yes. And what was so scary was if they labeled you a subversive, if the law enforcement authorities said you are a subversive, you had no rights. That's why we put in the, the FISA court into effect when all this came out. But it came out after Nixon was driven from office. So you say, did, did they have a right to break into Dr. Lewis Fielding's office without a court order on the basis of national security. And David Young, a very competent, accomplished lawyer, maintained that, yes, we did. We had an absolute right to do it. The fact Bud Krogh 
used amateurs, Cubans, instead of FBI agents is not my problem. We'll I come back to that. I, I want to go back to Ehrlichman signing off on this. Okay. So John Ehrlichman is dead and cannot comment on this. Yes. I don't know that he ever did, and you can tell me if he did. That he says, provided it cannot be traced to us, yes, suggests at least a recognition of political liability and possibly of legal peril. Take a step back. The issue was undertake a covert operation. Covert is a technical term that is defined in the uh, military intelligence manuals as a an undertaking only possible by the CIA that is undertaken without the knowledge of the host country. So if, for example, we undertook a study of the Argentine beef market to understand how they were producing beef, whether it was safe for American consumption, and we didn't tell Argentina we were doing it, that's a covert operation. It may or may not be illegal, but it is certainly secret. And John's entire defense, and, 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 and they had witnesses to back it up, was I approved a covert operation. I did not approve an illegal break-in. And when Bud and David were pushed really hard to go back to that meeting of August 5th, when they brought him up to date, they could not say they had used the term break-in. So John has approved something covert. When it came out, when they got permission, Bud says to his plumbers, who are by this time Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt. Now, it's another We're new We're going to have to bring him in. Yeah, okay. You're going to have to introduce Howard Hunt. Uh, let me go back to Gordon for a minute. Gordon was an ex-FBI agent, and he said to Bud, the FBI does black bag jobs all the time. That's an entry without a court warrant, usually to plant a bugging device. Uh, it's an illegal entry if you don't believe in national security. Howard Hunt... National Security Exception. National we, Security no, no. Exception. Howard Hunt is a career CIA agent, nominally retired. And he's done... Was he retired? Uh, we're never sure about leaving the CIA. Uh, it's just one of those things. You, uh, you could make the same argument about the Marines, Hugh, that you're, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. That I would just look for a pay stub somewhere. Well, uh, 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 you bring up these odd things. Uh, <laughs> Just uh, trying to make sure history understands President the point of view from inside the White House. President Trump said we're going to declassify everything having to do with the Kennedy assassination. You know, it's been too long. Big controversy. And they said, no, there's still sources and methods you can't reveal. All right, so back, they, no, 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 let's, let's not get too far. Let me, Gordon let me, hires Howard uh, Hunt. But let me, and this is interesting. So one of the things they declassified was a review of Richard Helms, the head of the CIA, worried that the CIA had been paying uh, Hunt under the table after he left because Hunt had written 45 detective novels under uh, uh, fake names that made the CIA out to be heroes. And they liked this guy because the CIA doesn't get credit for what it does. It only gets blamed for its failures. And they were very worried that Helms was still paying Hunt. So was he, you want to see a pay stub? The CIA has no pay stubs. The CIA deals in cash. When, when we would go Did you over, ever meet Hunt? No, I never met Howard Hunt. Would you have recognized him if you bumped into him on the street? Not in the least. My, so when he entered and exited the White House, are there logs of his arriving and leaving? 
uh, there may be logs or they may have been expunged, but he had an office. Colson hired him. He had an office. The uh, plot the thickens. He had an office on the fourth floor of the old EOB. Now stop. I thought, and again, I'm just the audience no, here. G. Gordon Liddy hired him. You just said Colson hired him. I did. Well, I did they you, both I, hire him? I speak the truth. <laughs> Colson hired Howard Hunt because he thought Hunt could help him with political issues. He was a consultant. Apparently, because Colson didn't have the authority to commit funds, he got Ehrlichman to allow some domestic council funds to pay for Hunt. Did he get the name from G. Gordon Liddy? How does Chuck Colson learn about Howard Hunt? Chuck's a Marine. He's a very accomplished lawyer. He's the drive over my grandmother if I need to guy. He's a political operative. As you said, perhaps the modern counterpart, the White House comms director. But why would he ever know Howard Hunt, retired CIA agent and author? As I understand it, they are both alumni of Brown University and at an alumni event, Hunt starts buttering up Chuck Colson. Has he already gone to work for G. Gordon Liddy at this point? Oh, Lord, no. He, hasn't even, he, he, he isn't even on the White House staff. He butters up Chuck Colson, and, and uh, he's recently retired from the agency, technically, and uh, uh, he thinks he could be of value, and Colson goes for it. And how does Gordon Liddy find Howard Hunt? Well, uh, Colson uh, uh, says to John Ehrlichman and to Bud Krogh, I have this guy who can help you with the plumbers. So uh, uh, Gordon is legally assigned to the plumbers. Uh, uh, Hunt is contributed by Chuck, who's calling his time, but technically the paycheck to the consulting paycheck to Hunt is a domestic council paycheck. An aside. Jeff Shepard, and there will be many, and people will have to follow it. Chuck Colson was a friend of mine. He's a great figure in evangelicalism. He wrote a very famous book, Born Again. In it, he makes the argument, I'm recalling from memory, I wasn't really guilty of anything, but I felt tremendous guilt. Is it because he is indirectly responsible for the hiring of Hunt by Gordon Liddy that he feels this tremendous guilt? Hugh, a lot of us carry a tremendous amount of guilt. Uh, if I'd tried harder, I could have prevented Gordon from joining the staff. Maybe I failed. Uh, maybe I could have done harder in, in my defense work for the president. Chuck was intimately involved in lots of stuff that is peripheral to the whole Watergate scandal. Chuck did not, was not actively involved in the cover-up. He got splashed by the legal pogrom of wiping out anybody on the Nixon White House staff. Then let's pause there because someone who is definitely deeply involved in the break-in and the cover-up is G. Gordon Liddy, yes. who hires Howard Hunt. Where's Mr. Dean at this point? Dean is counsel and uninvolved. Okay, nothing to do with anything, doesn't know what's going on in these meetings with the plumbers. No. Let's, let's whenever we can, let's make it a point to exonerate Dean because we have bad things to say about John Dean coming. It will come up. But we do not, early in the program, want to put him into the play. He enters stage crazy later. Let's, let's deal with the plumbers first. Yes. Okay. Uh, there's this meeting on August 5th. They can't say they talked break-in. They got authority on August 8th for a covert operation. They came out and they said to Hunt and Liddy, uh, we got permission, but you two guys can't do it. Okay. You can't do it. 
Hunt says, I know some Cubans. Stop. Who told them they can't do it? Bud Krogh. Bud Krogh. Are Bud you aware of this, by the way, Jeff? No. Is anyone, I paused. <laughs> is no, anyone, is Ehrlichman aware of, let's get some Cubans to do it? No. That's what's so intriguing. Uh, uh, the decision to get the, the Cubans comes after Ehrlichman has approved a covert operation. Bud says, you guys can't do it. We need space, you know. Uh, uh, so Hunt, as a career CIA agent, is the infamous Eduardo who attracted and helped prepare the Cuban invasion that resulted in the Bay of Pigs under uh, Jack Kennedy. We have three minutes to the end of this segment. Hunt hires Eduardo how? Hunt is Eduardo. Oh. Hunt is Eduardo, and the Cubans love him. So Hunt goes down to the Cubans in Miami and says, I need some help. Stop. I always wonder at this point, is he like wearing a Panama hat and a flowered shirt? Where does he go to recruit Cubans to break into Daniel Ellsberg's office? It's not like there's an office. Well, they're all over Miami. They're the underground. The Cuban underground is all, I mean, they, they, they outnumber everybody else in Miami. They're huge patriots. And they hate Fidel Castro. So, but how does Howard Hunt find guys to go break in? Because he, they, I mean, there must be a club of, 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 of Bay of Pig survivors. Is I it ever know. is it ever documented what he did with whom and how he got these individuals? I'm sure it's documented in the uh, trial, special prosecution uh, uh, files. I didn't care. Uh, he goes down and he and he tells them that this is really associated with Fidel and Cuba. We think that there's money being involved from, the, from Cuba supporting uh, uh, McGovern. We tell them some tale, okay, that convinces the Cubans. I, I refer to them as the hapless Cubans. Patriots. He convinces them they need to do the, the, uh, the break-in in Ellsberg's off, uh, in Fielding's office. Dr. Lewis Fielding is a Beverly Hills-based shrink and they're going to break in to try to find his file on Daniel Ellsberg. How do they pay for all of this? Uh, they get money out of the committee to reelect the president. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the Watergate break-in. Same Cubans. Uh, you know, that won't go over well on the tape. People no, will not no. understand that you're joking unless they're watching. But that was a joke. Which part? That they got it from the campaign to reelect the committee, uh, to break in, well, the, to hire the Cubans to break into Ellsberg. Where did the money no, for that they, come from? No, no, no. I, I made an honest mistake. Same Cubans. Same Cubans. The, the, the break into the DNC was paid for by the campaign. But who paid for the break into the Ellsberg? Office? I'm not sure anybody was paid. Interesting. I'm just not sure. I don't. I don't know. So uh, they go and they do it. Three minutes to the break. They go and they go. Well, first. Uh, 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 Liddy and, and Hunt go out to reconnoiter uh, to, to size it all up, and they take a camera, and there's a picture of Liddy with, with uh, Dr. Fielding's parking space, and they take a picture of the hallway and stuff like that, and then they send the camera over to the CIA for the film to be developed, and the CIA says, we don't want anything further to do with this. <coughs> we don't know what you people are up to, but we, we want miles away from this. They try to recruit a waitress in a bar uh, to help them, and she says, look, if you get caught, you guys will flip on me. I'm, I don't want anything to do with you. And Gordon says, we'd never flip on you. I'm the toughest guy in the world. Let me show you how tough I am. Holds his hand over a candle till his hand catches on fire. Okay? 
comes back on Monday morning, he walks into the office, his hand's all bent. Hey, Gordon, what happened to your hand? Oh, the dumbest thing in the world, Jeff. I was looking at a pretty girl, and I was lighting my pipe, and I was tamping it with a book of matches that caught on fire. Isn't that crazy? It was the candle trick. Liddy's showing how tough he is to some barmaid while they're re reconnoitering this break-in. You know, this is nuts. It, open and shut. <laughs> open and shut, shut nuts. nuts. All right, they so. come back. Now, then they do the break-in, and, and, and they, they, the, the Cuban who's supposed to pick the lock can't pick the lock, so they're going to have to not do it, and Gordon says, nuts to this. Gordon's hovering nearby. He says, break in. We'll make it look like a drug bust. They break in, glass files scattered all over the place. So later when the thing blows up, there's a police report. Now, picture the FBI going in, they call it a black bag job, the CIA calls it a surreptitious entry. They go in, they look, maybe they found something, maybe they didn't, they leave, but there's no record of the break-in. So even if there are allegations, there's no event. But by doing an actual break-in, there was a police report. Then it's failed, they found nothing, but the Cubans pop champagne and celebrate on how successful it was. And when Dr. Fielding testifies before the Congress, he says the, the Daniel Ellsberg file was on the floor. And they on that note, Dave, uh, Jeff Shepard, we are at the conclusion of part two of Known Unknowns, Watergate. But I would add, this is September of 1971. Yes. The war is raging. Richard yes. Nixon has opened the back door to China through Dr. Kissinger. They're approaching the epic travel there in a matter of six months, I guess. Is President Nixon aware of any of this? None, no, except he wants the leak stopped. But he is not aware of Bud Krug. He is not aware ordering. He's aware Bud Krug is running the plumbers. He's met with him. He has? Yes, he has signed it to him. Did he know that he was authorizing a break-in when no, he did so? No, of course not. Uh, Ehrlichman didn't know. If Ehrlichman had known, he would have. He would. When they came back and said that's what they did, Ehrlichman said, no more. Out of here. Gordon's off the staff. I don't, want, any, I don't want anything to do with this. this we'll you guys went there. too far. He, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, we will pick up there with part three. Last question of part two. Did Haldeman know? Haldeman wouldn't know, have known anything uh, uh, Ehrlichman would have known. That's the only question. If Ehrlichman chose to tell Haldeman, that would be separate. When we come back, we will pick up with what happens to G. Gordon Liddy when he gets fired.